It's good to be with you all. Would you please turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 14? That can be found on page uh, 1093 in your pew Bible. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. So as Jeremy said, my name's Dave and been a member here at the church for five or six years and um, have the great privilege of being part of the pastoral training program here. And uh, now that I've just finished up seminary, uh, my wife and I find ourselves on the cusp of a transition as, we, uh, as I change from training to be a pastor to, Lord willing, pastoring. We find ourselves using an expression more often uh, than usual, and that expression is open door. Now, if you've been a Christian for even a little while, or even if you've just been around Christians, you probably are familiar with this phrase, open door. And at its core, this phrase just means uh, something very true and biblical, that God is in complete control. Uh, if, it, if it isn't part of God's plan, then, well, it ain't going to happen. You know, if it's not part of his plan, then door closed. And if it is part of his plan, well, then the door is open. I don't think Christians disagree that, that God opens and closes doors. The question is, what does it look like when he does? How do we know if God has opened or closed a door? What can we expect to see and experience in our lives when God has opened a door? You you might say it looks like God removing obstacles, or there once was hardship and opposition and and difficulty. Well, that's kind of been smoothed out. Maybe you would say if God opens a door, it looks like risk being minimalized. We might say that an open door leads down an easy path. But then we come to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 is a a story about God opening up a door for Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel and plant churches in Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. Let me just show you where I'm getting this. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 27 quickly. So this is at the end of their journey when, when they finish and they return back to Antioch. And it says, on arriving there, Paul and Barnabas gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So this chapter is a picture of an open door, yet it's also a picture of hardships. In fact, I think the main thing that Luke wants his readers to know after studying this passage and the main thing that God wants us to learn is right there in verse 22. You see that quote? Halfway through verse 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So what we learn from this passage is that sometimes an open door leads down a difficult path. Sometimes an open door leads down a difficult path. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at three different hardships that Paul and Barnabas face as they walk through this open door that God provides for their ministry. And we'll find that they are three uh, hardships that we can expect to face as we live out our lives as Christians. So hardship number one, sometimes an open door causes division. Let's read starting in verse one. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. 
So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe into the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Sometimes an open door causes division. As is their usual custom, Paul and Barnabas, when they first enter a city, they make a beeline right for the synagogue. That's a place they know that their fellow Jews will be talking about the Bible. It gives them the best chance to to preach the gospel. And at these synagogues, you'd also expect to see uh, some Gentiles who have come to check out the Jewish faith. And God opens a door. It says in verse 1, a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But it also says in verse 2 that some people refused to believe and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So right off the bat, you have division. There's some tension building. There's potential for danger. I wonder what I would have done at this point. So you, you get there, you, you preach the gospel, these people come to faith, and you might think, well, Lord, it's starting to get a little dicey. Maybe you've closed the door now. Maybe it's time for me to, to move on. But that's not the case. There's difficulty, and yet the door is still open. Verse 3, so they spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his, God, of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Miraculous signs and wonders here are, are powerful works of God, uh, physical healings, demons being cast out of people. And notice that the signs and wonders are there to support the message. Uh, The signs and wonders are there to give credibility to Paul and Barnabas as authentic messengers from God. The signs and wonders are the supporting cast, but the gospel is the star of the show. So God's at work in Iconium. People are being healed. People are coming to faith. God's moving. And yet there's difficulties. Verse 4, the city is divided. Some side with the Jews, others with the apostles. Uh, Many of us have probably had this experience. You you share the gospel, and what happens? Division. Some people are interested and want to learn more. Other people think that you're the Christian weirdo, and they never want to talk to you again. You you share the gospel with your friends at school, and people either are interested and, and want to learn more, maybe come to youth group, or you find yourself sitting alone at lunch the next day. Uh, we, we, many of us live in extended family where there's a, a mixed bag of Christian and non-Christians. And when we gather together, there's a tension there because of this division. You know, strangers can become your closest friends and your closest friends can feel like strangers all because of this message about Jesus. When I first became a Christian, I, uh, I went to work and uh, the Lord opened up a door and I had an opportunity just to kind of share what happened. I was such a miserable person before. It was clearly obvious that something had changed. And uh, when, I, when I told people what happened, you know, people I thought were my friends, you know, they wanted nothing to do with me. They, they distanced themselves from me. And one time I was telling this, this one guy about what happened, and, and he just shrugged it off. He wanted nothing to do with it. But someone else heard, and they came up to me after and said, you know, I'd like to go to church with you on Sunday. I was like, oh, okay. And, and now that person's a member at this church. So the gospel divides. 
Some people turn to Christ. Some people become hostile. That's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. And in fact, the hostility is so great that they are forced to flee for their own lives. They find out that there's a plot to kill them. And so they flee to Lystra. So in this first part of Acts 14, we see that sometimes an open door causes division. Now in the second part, we're going to see that sometimes an open door causes confusion. Let's keep reading in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet. He was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Sometimes an open door causes confusion. Sometimes the very thing that God has given us to help people understand who God is and who we are as fallen people in need of Christ is the very thing that causes confusion. You've ever had that experience where you you think you've had a good, clear conversation with someone about your faith or about Christ, only to find out later that you've been completely misunderstood. You know, maybe you... you, uh, carry on the conversation a couple weeks later or a few days later, and, and at one point the person says, you know, it's like you said the other day. You know, religion's just about being a good person, trying your best, you know, trying to help people. And you're like, oh, how did you go from what I said about sin and the cross to, you know, that? You know, it, it's hard to be clear. You know, we live in a, a post-Christian culture. People don't have biblical categories anymore, and we find ourselves speaking a different language. This was Paul and Barnabas' experience in Lystra. You know, they go to a people that have no really understanding of the Bible, and they find it challenging just to be clear and understood. The story in Lystra begins with the healing of a man. You see there in verse 8? There sat a man crippled in his feet. He's never walked, and he's listening to Paul speaking. And Paul looks at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and calls him to stand up, and the man stands up. A quick word on healing before we move on. Uh, see that phrase in verse 9, uh, faith to be healed? So this passage is not saying that if you just have the right degree, the right quality, the right amount of faith, if you somehow can you know, unlock the faith code that God is guaranteed to heal you. It doesn't mean that if God hasn't healed you that there's something necessarily wrong with your faith. What's, what's going on here is that Paul is able to supernaturally discern that this man, as he's listening to Paul preach, is, is, uh, is believing what he hears. And 
Paul calls this man to express that faith, to demonstrate that faith by doing something that seemed impossible, by standing. God still heals today. Many of you in this room have amazing stories of God healing. We believe that God heals. If you're not well this morning, if you're suffering, pray that God would heal you. Have others pray for you. If you fill out one of those yellow prayer cards, there are people right now in the prayer room praying that you would be healed. We believe that God does it. But no one knows why he heals some and not others. That's a tough one. But what we do know is that for all of us who trust in Christ, there is coming a day when there will be no more sickness or pain or suffering or illness, and we can look forward with great hope and expectation for that day, even as you persevere through the suffering. Okay, so back to the story. So they heal this man. Paul heals this man, and look how the crowd responds in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They completely misunderstand what's happened. They're confused. It's kind of a a strange thing that unfolds here with the, the Zeus and the Hermes and the sacrifices, but there's some historical details that help us understand what's going on. So remember that these people are Romans, so they believe in the pantheon of gods. They believe in a god of the sky, a a god of the sea, a goddess of the moon, a god of their cereal. I mean, they have a god for everything. And they believe that sometimes these gods would come down disguised as humans and do things like healing. In fact, part of their folklore, part of their mythology is a story about a time when Zeus and Hermes came to this area to test the kindness of the people. And the people fail the test, they're mean to Zeus and Hermes, and so Zeus kills them all except for two elderly people who were nice to him. Zeus has low self-esteem. And and so this piece of mythology is probably rolling around in the back of their minds when they see Paul heal this man, and they're thinking, oh, Zeus and Hermes have come back with another test. And this time we're not going to fail. And so they bring the priest of Zeus out, who's offering the best sacrifices, and this mob of people is ready to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And look how Paul and Barnabas respond. Look at verse 14. When they, when they heard this, they, they tore their clothes and they, they rush out into the crowd. That tearing your clothes in this culture was a sign of great distress and, and outrage. And in Jewish culture, it was a, a sign of blasphemy that someone had spoken irreverently or untruthfully about God. And so they're making this big scene to try to stop this sacrifice from happening. And they also use it as an opportunity to correct the people, to, to tell them the truth. You know, verses 15 through 17. I, I wish we had more time to look at these words, but I just want to point out a, a few things. Notice that Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's likely just Paul speaking here, but Paul is both humble and yet bold. He's humble and bold. First, he's humble. Look at verse 15. Man, why are you doing this? We are only men, human like you. Don't get all excited about us. We're just, we're just people. We're made of the same stuff that you are. We're not gods. Some of the best evangelists that I've ever met are characterized by humility. We often think of evangelists as fearless and confident, and they have an answer for every question. But I found that you know, the best evangelists can just be regular, everyday folks like you and me who, you know, by God's grace, are humble. 
People who can say, look, there, there's nothing special about me. I'm just a sinner. But wait until you hear this good news that I have for you. you know, as Christians, we are day in and day out receiving something that we do not earn and, and did not deserve, and that's the grace of God. There, there's nothing you can do to tip the scales in your favor. There's nothing you can do to deserve God's grace. And when we lose sight of that, there can be a, a poisonous pride that develops in our hearts where we only see the problems and the sins of others, but we never see the sin that's right here in our own hearts. We can become self-righteous. The self-righteous Christian is borderline useless in the spread of the gospel because they will deliver the message without any tenderness or humility. They speak the beautiful words of the gospel and they come out as unattractive. We, we live in a culture that has radically different values than we do and it's easy to see the sins and the perversions around us and become bitter and prideful and self-righteous instead of humble and heartbroken and prayerful. If we're going to engage the South Shore with the gospel, we're going to need humility. They're not only humble, they're also bold. Look at the rest of verse 15. You know, don't get excited about us, we're just people, but we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Now, they're humble about who they are, but they're very bold and confident in the message that they have to share. You know, they're not afraid to call out idols and, and tell people the truth in a straightforward way. What, what, I, what do I mean by bold? What does it look like to be bold? Boldness looks like when God gives you an open door, when, when you have an opportunity, you take it, even though it might fracture a relationship cost you a job promotion, cost you a seat at the popular table, make you the outcast on the job site, make you the punchline of a joke. Being bold is sharing the gospel even when it is not safe. Even still, we can be humble, bold witnesses, and it still falls on deaf ears. It's still hard to be clear Look at verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. So we've seen that sometimes an open door causes division. Now we just saw that sometimes an open door causes confusion, and now we're going to see that sometimes an open door causes persecution. Let's keep reading in verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch. 
where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Sometimes an open door causes persecution. Notice the drastic change that takes place between verses 18 and 19. The the mob goes from uh, worshiping bulls to throwing stones. They go from worshipers to executioners. And how does it happen? Look at verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. This is the same group of people that have been giving Paul and Barnabas a hard time all the way back in chapter 13. And they've joined forces with the people in the beginning of chapter 14. And now they've come, about some of them about 100 miles, and they finally track down Paul and they're ready to finish what they started. You ever had that experience of someone who just relentlessly pursues you because of your faith? Always saying something under their breath, always taking subtle jabs at Christ or your faith. And so these uh, antagonizers come and convince the Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas can't be trusted and must be eliminated, and they stone Paul. They pummel his body with stones to the point where they think that he's actually dead. It's likely that Paul has been beaten so badly and that he's been knocked out and so he appears dead and so they take his his limp body and they throw it outside the city. The Christians come around probably to mourn his death or to gather his body for a proper burial and much to their surprise, he's still alive. Verse 20 says he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Now, there's no... Um, there's no mention of a miracle here, so we have to be careful not to force it into the passage. But you don't take a beating like Paul just did and then get up the next day to start a two-week journey by foot. So I think it's safe to say that God is uniquely sustaining Paul both physically and spiritually. Just imagine how easy it would have been to to give up at this moment. You know, God, clearly you've closed the door. I'm barely escaping with my life here. Clearly, the work here is done. That's not the case. The door's still open. What happens when they get to Derby in verse 21? They preach the good news, and a large number of disciples come from that. You know, there's persecution, but the door's still open. Okay, Paul, now you're done, right? You, you've, You've set out to go to all these cities. You've hit them all. You've preached the gospel. All these people have come to faith. Now you can finally return home. That's not what he does. Verse 21, he returns to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He goes back to the same city where he was just stoned. That's because Paul's ministry not only includes conversions and seeing people come to faith, but gathering these new Christians and into churches, and verse 23, putting elders over them. Missions is not only about conversions, it's about planting, uh, disciple-making, gospel-preaching churches who will be faithful witnesses to their area. And so that's what Paul goes back to do. And what does he do when he gets there? Look at verse 22. He goes there to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
So picture the scene for a second. You have these new Christians who are discouraged and weakened because of the hardships they're experiencing because of their new faith. And then you have Paul who's fresh off a stoning and he probably still wears the bumps and bruises and scars from this beating. Maybe he's missing teeth or walking around with a limp because of the broken bones. And so these are not the words of a disconnected person. He's not here offering cheap, naive advice. These are the words of someone who knows the weight of what he says. And look what he says. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here refers to that uh, finally, uh, that fully realized final kingdom at Jesus' second coming, the grand conclusion to the story that began with his first coming. And it's not saying that the suffering and the hardships get you into the kingdom. Only faith in Christ gets you into the kingdom. Rather, what this verse is saying is that a life of hardship and suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus is the common expected experience for the follower of Jesus. A life of hardship and suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus is the common expected experience for the follower of Jesus. And just like these early Christians, we too struggle with the discouragement that comes because of our witness. We know the pain of of causing division in our families and with our friends just because we wanted to tell them about Jesus. We know the, the frustration that comes with causing confusion, and we fear persecution and the effects that come with living life in a fallen world that opposes the gospel. And just like these early Christians, we need to know that if you're suffering for your faith, nothing unusual is happening to you. Don't be surprised when an open door leads down a difficult path. You know, we need to grow more comfortable with the reality that we are a peculiar people in this world who will be rejected. That way, when the hardships come, we won't be cut off guard. And the hardships, they will come. Our theme for this year is engage. We want to grow in our obedience to Jesus and the mission he sent us on to engage the South Shore with the gospel. And when we do, we can expect to experience division and confusion and and persecution. That's because the church is, is built in enemy territory. We are insurgents operating behind enemy lines, waging a a spiritual war against sin and the devil. And the gospel never advances without opposition. Every step we take in faith for the glory of God is met with opposition. When God opens a door for the spread of the gospel, what we find behind it are not smooth waters, but tidal waves. What we find behind it is not calm pastures, but a war zone on a spiritual level. For so many of us, myself included, our our Christian lives look mostly like smooth waters and calm pastures. And we have to be careful because that's not necessarily a sign of God's blessing, but it could be a sign that we have abandoned our primary call as a witness to his grace. It's a danger and a theological mistake to connect faithfulness to God with an easy life, as if I give you the obedience and you give me heaven on earth, you give me my best life now. It's just the opposite. 
we give him obedience and we experience the hardship that comes with living in this world that opposes its maker and Lord. The path to resurrection always comes by way of a cross. The path to glory always comes by way of shame. And when we realize this, we won't be tempted to throw in the towel when following Christ is harder than we ever imagined. So in this verse, we're promised both present suffering, but a future kingdom. If you follow Christ, you can expect hardships, but you can also expect the unshakable hope and inheritance of his kingdom. When we see what we gain in Christ, the things that he asks us to risk in this life seem like a bargain, like trading in pennies for a mansion or or all this snow for a tropical island. So how do we respond? For promise both present suffering and hardship, but a future kingdom, what's our response? We persevere. We patiently endure the trials. We press on. Notice that Paul doesn't say to these new Christians, fight back, fight for your rights, start a rebellion. And that's hard because I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want to just admit defeat. But who said anything about defeat? Persecution is not a a sign of defeat, but of faithfulness. Perseverance is not a sign of weakness. Certainly wasn't for Jesus. Jesus defeats death by dying. He overcomes those who oppose him by offering himself as a sacrifice. And what appeared to be weakness and shame and disgrace as he hung on that cross on Good Friday for our sins was power and glory and triumph when he rose from the dead on Easter. And he didn't fight back in his life with political or military force, but with endurance and faithfulness and obedience to his Father, and now as a result, he's our resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow. And his experience sets the pattern for our lives. When the world looks at us, they see weakness and foolishness, you know, just relics of a bygone era, people to be mocked. But Christ looks at us and sees his beloved people with with eyes to see and and ears to hear. Not relics of of a bygone era, but pictures of new creation. Not people to be mocked, but people who will one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of your master. So we too do not fight back using political or military force, but with endurance and faithfulness, and obedience to our Savior as we await the fullness of his kingdom. So we've seen that here in Acts chapter 14 that sometimes an open door causes division. and Sometimes an open door causes confusion. And sometimes an open door causes persecution. And this is the expected common experience for those of us who follow Christ. To be honest, this passage really convicted me. When I first started studying, I thought, you know, Lord, if this is a picture of an open door, well then, close the door. 
But you know what happens when you run from hardship? You know what happens? You miss out on the joy and the excitement that comes from watching God work through you as he accomplishes his work that lasts for eternity. You know what else you miss out on if you run from the hardships? The the intimacy and the closeness that comes as Christ draws near to encourage and comfort his persecuted people. Just a few people willing to suffer for his great name is a mighty tool in the hand of God. Can you imagine what he could do with an entire church willing to suffer for his name? The missionaries that would be sent out, the the churches that would be planted, the elders who would be called, the pastors who would be trained, the people who would come to faith, the saints who would become mature. Let's pray. King Jesus, help us to treasure you above all things. Open doors. Make us humble and bold. And when the hardships come, keep our eyes focused on your kingdom. Thank you for your promise never to leave us or forsake us. Amen.